Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1127, air date October 10th, 2022. Welcome to Going There on the Prosperity News Network. My name is Michelle Holliday. Today, we are welcoming to the show Dr. Shiva Ayadure. Dr. Shiva is an engineer, a scientist, an entrepreneur, a best-selling author, and an inventor. He holds four degrees from MIT. His PhD is in biological engineering, which is very interesting at this time in history. Not only is Dr. Shiva incredibly accomplished, he is also a notoriously outspoken champion when it comes to freedom of thought, education, and speech. He filed a historic federal lawsuit against Twitter and the United States government over censorship of the citizens of the United States. It was a first of its kind in a battle to uphold the constitution of our country in the face of a government and a media, which has all become part of a swamp of corruption. Dr. Shiva, welcome to the show. How are you today? Good to be here, Michelle. How are you? I am great. We are thrilled to have you here. It's going to be an incredible interview because we're going to dive deep into what is called the swamp of Washington, D.C. But before we go there, I want to take a moment to mention that this is the 40-year anniversary of an invention that outside of the telephone changed the way that every person on the planet communicates. And that is your invention of email when you were just 14 years old. And I think one of the most remarkable things about this, Dr. Shiva, is that you actually have a US copyright on email. And I'd like you to take us there. How did this all come about? Yes, so I think, Michelle, it's interesting because the invention of email took place in the triangle of a small medical college in Newark, New Jersey, infrastructure I was exposed to, a loving family, and then a mentor. And that is a triangle of where all great innovations always come from. And at the center of that was everyday people who had a very interesting problem, which were secretaries. Some people may remember in the old days, old days meaning prior to the advent of really the World Wide Web, the way that offices communicated in that time was through two means. So if you went to an office in the 1970s, and an office could be a small office or a large office, the office of the president, office of the prime minister, or the office in this case, which was the a, a medical college in Newark, New Jersey, where there were thousands of small offices. Every office had a researcher who was a, always a male or a doctor and a secretary. And in those offices, the way people communicated among all the other offices was two ways. One, the hardwired phone, right? The landline phone, you pick up the phone, you call another doctor, another researcher, or something called the inter-office mail system. And the inter-office mail system was paper-based. And the heart of that inter-office mail system in every, in every office was a secretary, always typically a woman. You have to understand in those days, women essentially had a few job opportunities, right? They could, separate from being a housewife, they could be a secretary, nurse, or teacher. And the secretaries in this office environment um, were really the heart and soul of the communication system. So if a researcher or doctor in one office wanted to communicate to another office, he would go to the secretary and he would start dictating. He would say, Alice, take, a, take the memo. And he would say to Dr. Jones, 
from Dr. Shiva, right? And he would say subject, right? The subject is we want to hire Michelle, right? And the topic would, and then he would say he attached is a resume of Michelle. We're thinking of hiring her for a new position in surgery department, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he may even then CC carbon copy the director of HR and maybe blind carbon copy his superior. Now, how did all that take place? Because the secretary in her desk had a thing called a typewriter. She would start then typing up this memo as he was dictating with all those fields to, from subject. It was a very structured format and then attach the resume and then put it in the drafts folder. The next day, the, the, uh, her boss would review it, redline it, put it back in the drafts folder and she would edit it. And when she got the final version, she'd put it in the outbox. And she typically put it in an envelope that she would tie with a string. And then she would send it out to everyone. But literally on her desktop, she had a typewriter, the inbox, the outbox folders, the tr a trash can below her. You see what I'm saying? All of these words, all of these components, it was a system she had. It wasn't just simply, you know, sending her a text message. That's very different. Now, in those, in 1970, at this medical college, they had these huge mainframe computers. And who used these mainframe computers were typically old white guys who were scientists with their little pocket protectors and their white lab coats. Because using these computers was a very difficult task. You had to know programming. It wasn't simple. So the concept, if you can take yourself back to that time, was a concept of a secretary, a woman, ever using the computer was unheard of, right? <laughs> because she would need training in computer programming. She I would think know. I broke it. <laughs> right. So just think about people today have technical difficulties <laughs> using machines, but this was exponentially, these people, users had very differing expertise, right? So the concept of her using or uh, the computer was unheard of. So the notion was, if you looked at the inter-office mail system, it was a system. It wasn't just simply writing a sticky note and sending it to someone, right? Mm -hmm. Now, in those old mainframe computers, you could send, again, you had to know programming, very simple, short messages at best. That was it. But I was given the challenge of taking this entire inner office mail system, the inbox, the outbox, the folders, blind carbon copy, the memo, and emulating that in the electronic version, in the digital world, which had never been done before. And the way I got that job as a 14-year-old kid was, I was very, very excited. My parents had just come to the United States in 1970. This was 1977. So I worked hard because I valued all the things that the U.S. had to give us. And so by the time I was 14, I'd, uh, 13, 14, I'd finished calculus, which only the high school students took. And I got accepted to a computer science program at NYU. 40 students out of the entire country were selected to learn computer science and seven different programming languages, digital hardware. So my mom would drop me off at the Newark Penn Station. I would take the train in at five or 6 a.m., study until 8 p.m., came home, and I graduated top of the class. This was at NYU back in 1977, 78. And when I finished that, I still had some high school subjects left, but a very wonderful woman in high school who was a teacher fought with the administration of the high school system so I could travel to Newark because I'd gotten a job there to work as a full-time research fellow. Originally doing research on how why babies were dying in their sleep using computer, looking at sleep patterns and trying to do AI methodologies to predict 
when the baby's sleep would stop by watching this, when the baby's heartbeat would stop by watching sleep patterns. While I was working there, I got this other opportunity because I was very good at programming to convert this whole inner office paper-based mail system to the electronic version. All right. This is just extraordinary. Let me ask a question. How did you know at 14 to copyright this? Because I know I've heard a lot of people ridicule other people who say they've invented something. Yeah. Okay. So that's, so it's an interesting story because what happened was when I finished this system and this wasn't, this was a lot of work. I used to work until 2 a.m. in the morning and I played soccer and I played baseball. I wasn't just a nerd. So to me, this was a fascinating opportunity, right? So it was play and it was fun, but I created this entire system in 50,000 lines of Fortran code in 8K of memory. I had to write all sorts of other stuff to even get this working. And it was used throughout the university by the secretary. It wasn't just a little toy, it was actually used. So I was the software engineer, I was customer service, I wrote all the documentation. And Dr. Michelson, who's still alive, he remembers when I had to give a seminar in front of all of these scientists and esteemed doctors. And he said, it wasn't a 50 year old man. It was a 14 year old kid. And, and I called this system email, E-M-A-I-L, which was not an obvious term in 1978. In fact, I invented not only the system, but I also created the term. Did you because, copyright the term? Dr. Well, I should have trademarked it, but yes. I oh. system only allowed five characters because the operating system only allowed five characters. So it wasn't an obvious term. So I named it email, wrote all the code to capture every feature we see in every email system today, won one of the Westinghouse Science Awards, which is today known as an, a, no, a baby nobles of the time. They give to young inventors. And it was featured in a local newspaper. And then when I came to MIT in 1981, it was on the front page of the MIT administration. They highlighted three of the 1,000 kids who come, came into MIT th that year, and I was one of them. And I was brought up to be very humble. I saw this article, and I moved on with my life. The, in the winter of 1981, I had been elected student body president at MIT for the freshman class, and I got invited to the president's home, his mansion, for this Christmas dinner. And he said- Sorry, would that be Ronald Reagan at that time? President of MIT at that time was a guy called Paul Gray. Oh, However, okay. he was a president of MIT, but he was, interesting enough, he was on the White House Science Council for Ronald Reagan. So he said, Shiva, it's too bad you can't patent software. The legislators in Washington were so far behind, they didn't even know what the hell software was. They thought it was people writing some music or some print or something. But what I didn't know was in 1980, two years after I'd invented email, the United States laws were changed where they allowed you to use copyright, which could protect written text or a novel or a movie script. They changed the laws that you could use copyright law to protect software inventions. Dr. Gray, Paul Gray, president of MIT said, Shiva, you should protect your invention using this Computer Software Act of 1980. So that's, so I wrote away, there was no PDFs, no internet. You had to write away for the copyright notices. My parents, neither I were wealthy like Bill Gates's parents to get high-end lawyers. So I filled out all that paperwork. And you can see on the Inventor of Email site, on August 30th, 1982, at that time I was 17, a young 17-year-old American kid was issued the first United States copyright, Indian American kid, for the invention of email. So I have the legal thing. I called it email. 
and I wrote all the code. There's no absolute controversy. It's black and white. Now, the thing was, I didn't promote it. I wasn't a PR specialist. I was really interested in medicine and continued my work at MIT, went in and out, did four degrees at MIT, started many different companies, did many other inventions for which MIT featured me on the front page for many other things I did. Starting EchoMail, which was a company to automatically analyze email, the work I did with Cytosol, the work I did with winning my Fulbright to integrate Eastern and Western medicine, right? So I was the darling of MIT, the golden boy. Now, interestingly enough, in 19, I'm sorry, in 2011, this is almost 33 years later after inventing email, my dear mom was dying of a horrible disease. And in a suitcase, she had saved all that material, all the computer code, all the tapes, all my awards. And three months before she died, she presented it to me in a Samsonite suitcase. And I was like, wow, I forgot about all this. The science editor, Time Magazine, a guy called Doug Ameth, the only journalist who actually did his job went through all of this and he wrote a beautiful article on November of 2011, 33 years later, saying the man who invented email. And he said, look, this is email. And no one had any problem with that. And then that month, the Smithsonian and the Computer History Museum, two different museums called me. They said, wow, we didn't know this took place. They wanted all my material. So I donated it to the Smithsonian, the National Museum of American History. And on February 16th, 2012, there was a huge, beautiful ceremony held where I donated all the materials. It was a big honor, right? And it should, be, should have been an occasion to celebrate the American dream. And in fact, on that day, a young Washington Post reporter brought me into the Washington Post studios and they filmed three videos talking about innovation. And she wrote an article called Dr. Shiva Iadre Honored as the Inventor of Email. Right after that, a bunch of liberal elitist academic professor historians who thought they already had written the history of email. It's like writing the history of man. Uh -huh. um, this was like a skull was found, a new skull was found in Africa, which said, hey, email really came from over here. They had written a false, completely fictitious history that email was came out of the military industrial academic complex. So right when my stuff went to the Smithsonian, it was a bomb went off. And you could see the vitriol, people saying this curry-stained Indian should be beaten and hanged. Gawker Media, which called me an asshole, a dick, a, et cetera, horrible names. And I was here I was running a new company, Cytosol, and teaching at MIT, one of the most popular, unlike Elizabeth Warren, I wasn't charging anything for the course. So you see all this vitriol, and you see all the attacks, all my four degrees at MIT didn't mean anything, all those awards. And why was that? Because the invention of email did not occur at MIT. It didn't occur in Silicon Valley. It occurred before I came to MIT in a small medical college in Newark, New Jersey. And this is significant because it shows that great innovations can occur independent of big military, big universities, and big government or big corporations. Mm -hmm. All right. And during that period from 2012 until 2016, whose massive defamation was conducted by these corporations in collusion with these academic historians. And it's all documented. And one of the corporations called Raytheon right here, who had on their website claimed they were the inventors of email using the moniker of a guy who looked like a nerd, 
All he had done was done simple text messaging at best, but they had conflated that to mean email. And that was the narrative. And now what I didn't know was when my stuff went in the Smithsonian, that company was getting government grants in cybersecurity claiming they were the inventors of email. So when my stuff went in, it basically destroyed their marketing thing. Mm -hmm. So they're the ones who unleashed through these academic prostitute historians, because that's what most academics have become now. They're pay to play. So it was not until 2016 that I found a lawyer, Charles Harder, who had just won a major defamation lawsuit for Hulk Hogan, who Gawker Media had called all sorts of names. And you can read about that $100 million lawsuit. So I went to Charles. Gawker Media was a company who had written all these horrible things. And Harder looked at all my stuff. By the way, Harder later on became Trump's personal lawyer and won a bunch of defamation lawsuits for Trump and against Melania also. Uh, but he said, Jesus, you invented email. Oh, again, lawsuits that were defamation against Melania also. Yes, is what you're yes. Saying. So both yeah. of them were. Yeah, so but Harder took on my lawsuit on contingency, which very few lawyers do. I mean, he gets paid 1200 bucks an hour because he saw the merit of the case. And right after we filed our lawsuit for 35 million, Gawker Media claims bankruptcy. <laughs> the karma was I get appointed the chairman of the bankruptcy committee to sell Gawker. <laughs> all the three defamatory articles are taken down and all the quote unquote, the liberal elites say, oh, Dr. Shiva is attacking the First Amendment. First Amendment does not allow you to defame other people say false statements. Right? So we won and I was awarded about a million bucks. None of the media wanted to report on this. But during that period of 2012 to 2016, another liberal elite, Walter Isaacson, who wrote the book on Steve Jobs, writes a book right in the middle of this quote unquote fabricated controversy. There is no controversy. The controversy was created because it exposed the military industrial academic complex that they are not the sources of all great innovations, that innovations come from bottoms up, from everyday people. In fact, by the way, a 14-year-old boy invented TV, Philo Farnsworth. I was just going to mention him a little yeah. bit earlier because almost identical. This is very I, strange. RCA. Yes, RCA stole it. his stuff. And he, he created a physical product, which he was able to patent. Only on the 19th year after 20 years of litigating, did he win? But he only had one year patent life. I think he died an alcoholic. It took 60 years finally to give him the credit he deserved where his statue was built in Washington. Now, had, my, had I invented MIT, it had Philo invented, uh, Philo invented TV at MIT or Silicon Valley, he would have been heralded. Mm -hmm. Point is, he did it in a small farm in Franklin, Idaho. I did it in a small medical college in Newark, New Jersey before I came to MIT. And this is the heart of the issue. In fact, a senior Wikipedia editor wrote to me and he goes, Dr. Shiva, I attempted to give you credit on Wikipedia and I was attacked. He goes, your article on email is more volatile than the abortion article, than even the First Amend Second Amendment, which are very volatile articles on Wikipedia if you try to change them. And, he's, and the reason is why. The reason is not the facts about the invention of email. Clearly, I invented it. The reason is why was a controversy created? And that leads to one recognizing that, and this comes to Walter Isaacson, who's a complete scumbag. They herald him as some great theorist. He's, he started the uh, Aspen Institute, but he wrote, in the middle of this controversy, he writes a big book called The Innovators of the Digital Revolution. It's almost someone commissioned him to write that in the middle of this fabricated controversy. Now, you would think email is, some, is a digital innovation. Right? So he writes a big fat book on the innovators of the digital revolution. 
in the middle, in I think in 2014, when I'm being vilified and attacked as some fraud, quote unquote fraud. And in that book, email is left out. Email is one of the most centerpieces of the digital revolution. And all of the inventors that he talks about are all white people coming from the big establishment institutions. Now it's not, it's fascinating because he has everyone there and you look, and if any person of color looks at this, it's like only white people can innovate and white people from the military industrial academic complex. All other innovators are left out, including white people who are not part of the military industrial academic complex, who also contributed. Yes. So the real issue here is that the invention of email took place by a, it's a multi, in my case, it's multifaceted, more than pilots. It's a dark-skinned Indian immigrant kid in Newark, New Jersey, where nothing <laughs> is supposed to come out of, before MIT. I do. It's like five levels of discrimination there. So what it, show, what it reveals is that the elites have created brainwashed people to believe that all great innovations must come from war. We go kill people somewhere and then, oh, we should be happy. Or we go, we should be happy you got Tang and Velcro or something, which by the way, didn't come from the military either. So they brainwash people, fund war, because that was the narrative. Oh, email came out of the ARPANET. Bullshit. It's complete, the biggest lie on the planet. And the what's ARPANET so extraordinary, it's, it takes a lot of guts to ridicule or accuse someone of lying when they're standing there with a copyright from the US government. They and have, the code, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the fact that I invented email, and the level of vitriol, what's amazing. And what's fascinating about these crooks is they try to, this is a liberal imperialism. Oh, well, no one person could invent something so big as email. Bullshit. Yeah. Philo it's did invent TV. It, yes, you know, yes. One person can do a lot. So they say, oh, it's a collaboration. So they try to steal your innovation hijack it through using the word collaborative. No, I did write all the code. I did invent it. If any collaborator there was, was those secretaries, those women who were my customers. And it was that the real triangle of innovation is a loving family, a mentor, and infrastructure. That's where great innovations come from. So they want to basically, like genetically engineered foods, they want to genetically engineer innovation which is it only can occur at MIT, it only can occur at Silicon Valley. And why is that? Because billions of dollars, trillions, then flow to those centers of innovation. Mm -hmm. Now, I was paid, when you looked at the total thing, I wasn't paid the first year or the second year. The third year, I got paid a buck 25 per hour. I got free lunch in the cafeteria, and I was very happy to get that lunch. But at most, I calculated, maybe it was three to $5,000. So if you take a little bit of money and put it all over the United States, you'll get more innovations like throwing seeds everywhere versus trying to genetically engineer it. So this is what is the economics of this that's going on. And the other thing that is that the lawmakers are basically, because they're not engineers or scientists and none of them are electricians or plumbers, never built anything, they don't know what innovation is. They should have, it took 1994 until to allow software patents. It shows how backward these legislators are compared to the founders of the United States who were inventors, Thomas Alva Edison, Franklin, even Lincoln later on. And they knew the importance of patents and protecting patents. And that's why the United States grew because of the IP protections in this country. 
So we now have a bunch of idiots who are in Congress, senators, congressmen. And this is why you look at it economically. Innovation is really the powerhouse of the modern world. And that is what should be supported. So we're in a very precarious situation because the invention of email should be a story that should be shared widely with everyone. Everyone should know it was, there's a picture of that I have on the website. It was this 14-year-old kid. And it's not, I mean, those liberal elites who talk about diversity and racism, they're the ones who attack me. Isn't that That's extraordinary? What, yeah, That's exactly. an extraordinary point. Exactly. So this is what it is. The right wing, anyone, quote unquote, the right wing, they all got it. The facts are black and white. And the reason is because the left liberal elites are the ones who want to decide who's an innovator, who isn't, what is racism, what isn't. The real racism is, here's the real racism, is that when I was at MIT, I was on the front page for many things. So I was a model minority. So the liberal elite institutions liked the model minority. But when I was not willing to be a good Indian, see, the liberal elites like to put people into nice little boxes. Oh, if you're blonde, you must be like this. If you're an Indian, you must talk like this and sit in your meditative pose, <laughs> blah, 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 right? And you surely will not fight back because you've been mm -hmm. taught about this Gandhian bullshit. And if you're Chinese, you're like this, right? The real segregation is putting people into these boxes. And if you step out of that box and you'll be beaten down, whatever it is, right? If you're from the South, and you speak with the drawl, you must be a redneck who wants to kill all black people, right? So they created these. And so if you're an Indian, uh, Indians can be good IT workers, but they hit the ceiling. They can't be known as great innovators, right? You don't, when an Indian child grows up, who do they think about as an innovator? They don't, oh, Thomas Alva Edison. Now, if I was blonde haired, blue eyed, white skinned, and I had done email at MIT, and I have to really ask this question, if my last name was Smith or Einstein, I'd be on every stamp. But they have decided these set of people can do these things and they'll remain in that box. So what really bothered them, Michelle, out of this was that I was not willing to be a good Indian, meaning I was vocal. I fought back. That goes out of their model that the liberal elites want to put everyone in. You see? They're the yeah. biggest racists. They're the biggest segregationists. I was just going to say that this is so upside down and twisted backwards because honestly, conservatives, hey, achievement, achievement. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. meritocracy. Yeah. Left is more like. It's like inclusion by inclusion, they mean if I've done anything or not. No, 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 it's I, even worse than that. What is this? They, what, what they're doing is they are going to decide what is diverse and what is not diverse. They will decide what's included and not included. They're actually against real diversity. True diversity is recognizing that innovation is in everyone's DNA. And it's so important. I just want to bring up this fact. It's so important when you have an innovation and an invention, it's part of you. It's really something that inspires you and thrills you and look what I've done. And as an individual, whether you're 14 or 94, for a big corporation to come in and go after you and ridicule you and call you names and put you down and turn that spark of brilliance into almost an ashamed kind of moment, oh yeah right you, you, yeah you nailed it what was interesting is 
uh, talk about this in talks I give. When I was at MIT, when I came at, seven, at 17, even till now, I was outspoken activist. I fought to make sure more poor blacks, whites, men and women were able to come to MIT. And there's huge protests I ran. Um, I fought for people of all color. I, I organized the food service workers. I was always fighting for others. And when this situation took place, no one wanted to fight for me because they would say, oh, ha, ha, ha. Oh, you're saying you invented email. That's like the Al Gore. I said, no, Al Gore didn't invent anything. I actually did invent it. And what's interesting was thousands of phone calls came into MIT asking for my firing. It was incredible. And here I would go into MIT teaching a course for pennies while I was running a full-time company on the most popular elective course on teaching students a graduate level course called systems visualization. And it was like your degrees, you became a pariah. And that's, and then I had to reach down. I've talked to women who've been raped and they say, when you get raped, you're made to feel as though you did something wrong. So I said, shit, maybe I didn't invent email. Maybe I'm lying. Maybe someone else had invented it. So you go through that. And luckily I had a student in my class, very smart student, Devin Sparks and Devin was so upset with what he saw going on in the press. He went and literally lived in the MIT library. And we went back and we did research on every article, scientific paper written before 1978. Like maybe someone else invented it. And lo and behold, I find an article written by a guy called David Crocker. He should really be called Crock of shit. But David Crocker was a guy who claimed he was the messaging electronic messaging expert of the time. And he had written an article in December of 1977 for the Rand Corporation, summarizing the history of work in electronic messaging. And in that article, he had said that no one essentially was going to build an email system, an electronic version of the inner office mail system, because it was impossible. And we found this article. And we found it and we started sharing it. He gets scared and he calls my old mentor to try to tell me to calm down. And he writes an article in the Washington Post saying, oh, one person couldn't invent email. It was done by us and I was there and all this nonsense. So he was trying to conflate electronic messaging, sending messages through electronic and electrical devices with email, which is a system. I never claimed I invented electronic messaging. That goes back to Samuel Morse, who did the telegraph. I created email, the system as we know it today, period. So they were trying to take credit by conflating. It would be like saying text messaging is email. When you log into email, you see the inbox, the outbox, the folders, mm -hmm. that entire system, which was, come. you don't see that in text. You don't see that on Facebook. Yeah, they're all systems for electronic messaging, but they're very different kinds of systems. I invented email. I never claimed to take credit for electronic messaging. Right. So this was the nonsense that went on and it still goes on. If you try to update my Facebook page until when I started sharing this again, you weren't, my Facebook page was locked. If you try to go update the stuff on email article, little by little people are getting the truth out on Wikipedia because Wikipedia also serves the military industrial academic complex. Right? I don't want ever other truthful narratives to come out. But the invention of email is something every American should be sharing with their child yes. because it shows that great innovations do not come out of MIT. Yeah, I went to, I got to go to MIT. Great. But I didn't even know about MIT until two weeks before I applied. I, in the last three years of my high school, my parents, we always went to public school. 
moved to a very wealthy Jewish community in Livingston, New Jersey. Very nice people, very wealthy. And me and my sister were the only two Indian kids among 4,000 kids. And my graduating class had close to 1,000 kids. And, and unfortunately, those Jewish students were brought to bring up, they're the chosen people of God. They're the only smartest people. That's what I grew up around. Nothing. A lot of my friends are Jewish friends and they know what right. I'm talking about. Right? All your friends are like, hey. Yeah, <laughs> so the concept that? of, I remember when I won a math award in that high school, a Jewish mother coming up and saying, you, what you did is nothing. The teacher just given this big auditorium saying, Shiva is the best student I've seen in 30 years. And she goes, my son, Eric could have done that, but he chose not to work hard that year. So this was a, so no one told me about MIT in my own high school. There's a lot of jealousy, even though I won every award, I was an athlete, scholar. Randomly, my mother had helped these two women who were homeless and she let, my mom was always helping people. She said, you could stay at my home at our, when we had a little one room basement apartment, you could stay there. And one of the women had a friend who was this crazy mathematician. And he said, oh, you should go to MIT. And he's the one who brought the MIT application and said, I should apply. And I didn't even know what it was. And I thought it was a mental institute. It said Massachusetts <laughs> Institute of Technology. I didn't want to apply. A few days before the application was due, he wouldn't leave my home until I filled it out. I filled it out, got in. And then my high school said, oh yeah, you should go there because they get the ratings, you see? But it wasn't like my high school was supporting me to go to MIT. So when I came to MIT, it wasn't like I was really into MIT. I had learned so much in high school. I became really an activist. I learned political systems theory, or in fact, developed it. You know? So that's what was interesting with the invention of email. In some ways, uh, they didn't understand that I would fight back. They, I wasn't into like, being the Indian and shaking my head and sitting under a lotus tree or on a lotus leaf in a banyan tree, right? So that was what the liberal elite racists really are about. Put you in a box. Indian people can be customer service reps and be IT workers, but you can't be like a Thomas Alva Edison or a Mozart. That's preserved for these people who go to the elite institutions. Yeah, everything is, is systemized. It's it really seems to be like it's like robotic almost. It puts you in. Well, they want people in boxes. Mm -hmm. It was a Michigan mechanic, by the way, who created the automatic control system for the windshield wiper in his mm -hmm. basement. You know, two yeah, MIT professors. Yeah, two MIT professors went and took it from him. Okay. So the real and the reason this is done to the earlier point. To me, the divinity within everyone comes through innovation and creativity. So when you say only these people can innovate and you can't that's like a modern caste system but i grew up in india like only the brahmins can create only after you go to mit or harvard and you drop out <laughs> dropping out is cool zuckerberg's in the gates you have to go to their institutions of power and you get anointed and then you can be free to be branded as a great innovator or you can grow up in silicon valley like steve jobs or wozniak like you see, you have to be in one of their centers of power. It's all about the money, Dr. Shiva. Right, where the money flows. The money, right, right. and it's a lot of money right. for a definite threat. But I wanna talk about, I wanna shift gear just a little bit because I want to, if you're free to do, so talk about that federal lawsuit that you filed against Twitter and the United States government. How did that start? When did it take place? What was their defense? And this is only if you're free to discuss this at this time. Yeah, what I can do is I can talk about that and I'll, uh, and I'll talk about the solution that we've created. So at a broad level, you know, closing up the invention of email, I came to understand innovation is a key to really transforming 
the world. It's and a I power that this, you know, can't. You have to claim this. They don't understand for humanity, for humans to understand that they are free and open to create these brilliant inventions. Because number one, if you say you won't re be recognized for it, you will be ridiculed for it. That does have an effect upon people who invent things and want to present it. This happens in the medical industry and it happens in the energy industry and it happens with all kinds of people, cars that run on water or people that have cures for cancer or because what it does is it runs up against big money. And so you have to be able to say as an individual, look at my brilliant invention. What do you think? Yeah, that's why right. they basically created the situation that I have no choice but to come out of something and claim it. I never wanted credit for it. But now that you attacked it, there is no choice but to take the credit that's well-deserved. You see what I'm saying? Yes, absolutely. So my journey is once you're an innovator, you're always innovating. It wasn't like I needed the invention of email to define me. You know, I invented the first system for artists to go online in 1993. We created a whole arts community called Arts Online. It was featured in the New York Times. Uh, we, uh, 1993 at the same time, my second life with email was creating an entire AI system to automatically analyze email and route it. I grew that to a $250 million company. I did it originally for the White House. I won a competition. Every major company behind here, we have our data center, would route their email. Our technology would figure out the attitude, the issues, automatically calculate and route it. We created what's called email management. And then uh, more recently, I've created a technology for, automat for mathematically using the computer to eliminate the need for animal testing where we can model biological pathways on the computer and we're creating new medicines. It's Cytosolve is that company. And even more recently after, and I'll talk about the lawsuit after I ran for office, we may do it again. I realized that what was really needed is to go beyond this left, right narrative. And we've created what's called the truth, freedom and health system. It's a platform, a technology platform that teaches people system science, which is what the elites learn to manipulate all of us, but the same science of systems can be used to free us. And if we don't learn the science of systems, it's like the elites have a nuclear weapon to subjugate people and people are walking around bows and arrows. In science of systems can be used to understand your body as a system. Everything in the universe is a system. It's I truly the science. extraordinary. The entire universe is a system, you know, right? And the I, solar system. And once you understand that and you understand you're being grouped into a system, it opens you up. It really right. Does. So I've created the science so anyone can understand the nine principles of every system in the universe. Then we've created tools that you can understand your body as a system and use it to actually go beyond any diet. So this has been sort of the 50 year journey. And that is a truthfreedomhealth.com. And we can do a whole thing on that. But yes. it's a way that people can go beyond left and right. And now we have over 360,000 users globally, about a quarter of a billion people know about truth, freedom and health. And how did all this come is because in 2017, when I decided to, in 2007, when I finished my PhD, I went back to MIT and I have a deep interest in traditional systems of Indian medicine. I was able to integrate engineering systems theory, traditional medicines, and literally tease out these nine principles of all systems. And well, that could you list the nine principles? You've mentioned that twice. I'm very curious. Yeah, but. it's input. Every system has an input. Every system has an output. Every system has a movement of information, matter, and energy, which is called transport. Every system in the universe converts information, matter, and energy from one form to another. That's called conversion. 
And then every system has structure to contain all of this, which is called storage. Now, intelligence systems, those are the five systems, have four more components. A goal, where they want to go, sensors to observe, are they going to that goal, and a controller, which helps people have the intelligence to change the inputs to achieve that goal. And then the last ninth one is disturbances. So once you understand these nine principles, you can understand your body as a system, you can understand politics, you can understand every system in the universe. So in three hours, I've packaged it into a course. And then what we've done is we give all the books that I've written. Then we give an entire community of volunteers who will support and train you. And then we give one-on-ones with me, which we do every Thursday nights at 11 a.m. Uh, EST and at 8 p.m. mornings at nights. And then we have tools we've created independent of big tech so people can have a community. We've created an independent tool, independent of Twitter, independent of Facebook, and independent of YouTube, three different tools. And then we give people tools that they can go educate their neighbors, activism tools. So it's a complete system. And this is a way that we're going to really win by going beyond left and right. Because when you look at any problem, it's not left wing or right wing. There's a real solution once you identify the real problem. So Truth, Freedom, and Health, I believe, is a phenomenal innovation, as big as email or anything else. But it is a system of knowledge and learning. So people go to truthfreedomhealth.com, they'll see it. But how did that come about was I realized that when I ran in 2018, we first ran against Elizabeth Warren for U.S. Senate. Our slogan was only the real Indian can defeat the fake Indian. It was to expose the lack of integrity. It was a great thing. The Republican Party in Massachusetts is a bunch of, is a joke. They're basically the a wing of the Democratic Party. And they you would think they would want someone like me to run, but they had an idiot who ran uh, who had... Uh, basically had never held really any job, a failed sign salesman. So we decided to run as independents. And then in 2020, we decided, okay, give the Republicans a chance. So my dog's in the back. I (laughs) know, I was going to mention you have that. How many have I counted? Two so far? Yeah, yeah. so they're actually Native American Indian dogs. We got them during Elizabeth Warren. They're beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So anyway. (laughs) Tail going past. Yeah. Uh, 2020, we ran as Republicans on the slogan of truth, freedom, and health. Without freedom, you can't get to truth. Without truth, you can't find out what's health. Without health, you can't get to really understand. You can't fight for freedom or truth. Anyway. You're not healthy, you can't fight. Exactly. And that campaign garnered 3,000 volunteers on the ground. We were everywhere. The Republican Party in the primaries was so afraid of me, they ran an idiot, another idiot, who had maybe one lawn sign up. We had close to 25,000 lawn signs had raised $2 million in a primary, which is unheard of, from all over, mass, all over the country. So on the night of the September 2020 election, what we find is everyone said Dr. Shiva won by a landslide. We win hands down in the only county where it's all hand-counted paper ballots. Okay. In every other county, we lose 60-40, 60-40, 60-40, 60-40. We're all of them machine tabulated. And so I went on Twitter and I posted, I said, I went to the secretary of state and I said, I want the ballot images in the machines. Images are created when a paper ballot goes through. And according to federal law for a federal election, all data in connection with a federal election is supposed to be preserved for 22 months. I asked Absolutely. for the ballot. Images. And, you know, I just want to add something. 
The reason it's preserved for 22 months is so any citizen, whether they're a candidate or not, can go back and check to make sure the election yes, and is that fair. that and that Period. law was put in there by Democrats 50 years ago because they wanted to be able to audit an election. It's encouraged. Okay. So anyway, so the Secretary of State's office said they deleted the ballot images. So on Twitter, I said Massachusetts deleted one million ballots dash ballot images because the ballot images are the ballots because that's what's actually reviewed today. Right. Yes. Immediately. I am. I've never been. I've been on Twitter since 2007. I'm thrown off Twitter, suspended. I went into federal court and uh, one of these fake fact checking organizations did me a service in some ways they said oh dr shiva's lying no ballots were deleted i never said ballots idiot i said ballot images and in that article they said they had spoken to the secretary of state of massachusetts and the secretary's office had said that they had contacted twitter government wow. had contacted this is in 2020 to throw off a U.S. Senate federal campaign. And I was, my election, I moved to a write-in campaign. So I'm still a bona fide in the general election. So I went into federal court, no lawyer in Massachusetts. They're all, you know, whatever, right? They didn't want to take this. I did it myself, filed my own briefs, got a preliminary injunction hearing, which is unheard of with a federal judge. And in that hearing, uh, we cross-examined the social media director and she admits that she contacted Twitter and the judge says, how did you do this? We have a special portal. Government has a VIP portal to Twitter and Facebook. They can launder censorship. So they call Twitter. Twitter does a dirty work and they can say, oh, we had nothing to do with it. They did it. So yeah. I came up with the term laundering censorship. Anyway, big victory on October 30th. The judge rules in my favor. He said this is he tells the secretary of state, you will no longer contact Twitter. We told Tucker Carlson about this. I have the email. Tucker did nothing because he's the master grifter. He's a complete scumbag. Of zero. He did zero. Yeah, Two Fox is very interesting. They're, they've turned into a very interesting. They've always been that. They want their entertainment. They will never tell the truth. They will only tell the truth if it spurs the left-right narrative. You see the dialectic. That's what these guys are about. These people are entertainers. Yeah, they want to be they, popular. So exactly. we're going against them, but they don't really they tell he, the truth. He had, the important thing in telling the truth is, okay, fire comes, burns down a building. You were there, but do you tell the truth two years later? Do you tell it when it needs to be done? You know, Alan McDonald, the engineer, he told the truth at the right time. He was an engineer who would not sign off on the O-rings for the space shuttle. He took a principal stand. He di died a couple of years ago. He said the most important thing in life is to say the right thing at the right time. These grifters, Tucker Carlson being a master scumbag grifter, watches which way the wind blows. He doesn't say anything against Hunter Biden because him and Hunter Biden are buddies. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, 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 yeah. He had Hunter Biden write his signs uh, recommendation letter. These guys are all one, Michelle. They're all one class oh, of people. Yeah. So the issue is we, Tucker didn't do anything. No media covered it except some small alternative media. This was the most important lawsuit because here we're exposing that government is in an unholy alliance with big tech. You say yeah. it's not big tech. It's operation. like the bat phone. They've got the bat phone, right? And, uh, people are at least in Russia and China. They're very straightforward. Yes. We're one. The government and the companies are one. They, they, it's really state capitalism. In the U.S., we have this 
fake Chinese illusion. wall. It's an illusion. It's a revolving door, right? So we expose that. And then I got thrown off. So I go back on Twitter and on February 1st, I once again shared my email communications, which I'd done before with the secretary of state where she's admitting that they deleted the ballot images. And this time I'm, I'm thrown off permanently. <laughs> we went back into federal court again with five, six claims saying, not only did I want to be put back on Twitter, but I, would, I wanted the individual secretary of state, the lawyer, to be personally liable. It's called piercing the veil of qualified immunity. And I had all the case law to do that. So anyway, the judge is appalled. I found these documents, which people go to winbackfreedom.com and they can find, which shows that there are actual manuals which were crafted at Harvard, backed by the Atlantic Council, which is called the Influence Operations Documents, a step-by-step -step manual of how you will identify any US citizen who says anything against election officials, how they'll be put on a watch list and how they will be tracked and censored. The actual document, the judge is appalled. This is a federal judge who was appointed by Reagan. He goes, this lawsuit will be taught in every law school exam, Harvard educated 70 year old lawyer. After that, he appoints me a constitutional lawyer. So they re and now he says, I want to bring Twitter into this lawsuit. So it's now me against seven lawyers. And he then appoints me another judge and another, sorry, another lawyer to help me. So I will strengthen the case if it gets appealed. And that case was set for June or July. This lawyer who comes on at the last minute, three days before my next hearing says, why don't you just drop? all the other claims, just get back on Twitter and you'll be seen as a great hero. The first guy put back on Twitter by a federal judge. So he wanted me to compromise, just get back on Twitter, be happy, but not go after these individuals. When I had discovered all the case law and the evidence, I said, no way, I had to fire him three days before. I had to do all like hundreds of pages of briefs before. This time the judge gets upset with me because a judge wanted to toast his martini and say, look, we put back the guy on Twitter. The Constitution is OK. He wanted to let all these election officials off the hook. And I was unwilling to do that. And that's precisely what Alex Berenson just did. He got back on Twitter on the vaccine issue. But see, my lawsuit is much more powerful because it's about relating censorship to elections. Exactly. It's about and Tucker Carlson did a whole thing on that lawsuit, but conveniently forgot two years later. You see, if you had done this two years later, we could have stopped a lot of the election systems issues. So that's why Tucker Carlson is a complete scumbag of the first order. <laughs> Tucker's going to hear this. It's <laughs> I don't care. He's a complete scumbag. This is, he's, he's a grifter. This he's is a master so grifter. <laughs> For every American right now to realize where we're at in the country. Yep. Because if an individual who, just taking yourself, for instance, who is an inventor, can be then ridiculed by large corporations to try to get you to say you're not so they can continue the money flow or right. they can censor you, you know, candidate and the election is again stolen and then conveniently the way to count it is now missing or deleted. Ballot so images. And then when you share the facts about the ballot images being deleted, then you're thrown off Twitter and then when you show the unholy alliance between government and Twitter, then, by the way, the judge sealed my lawsuit. No. So yes. no one can see it. 
What, what I did was he wanted me to only file it with that one claim. I did it and I said, you know what? I'm walking away. I don't just want to be on Twitter. So you guys can say Dr. Shiva uh, should be happy. I didn't want it to settle in that way. I'd rather take my principal stand. I yeah, wanted, yeah, I didn't want to give him their quote unquote victory by just putting back the darkie back on Twitter. You know, I wanted to say, oh, this guy should be happy that he's back on Twitter, right? They don't want to reveal the biggest issues because one is individual freedom. The other issue that scares them is collect individual freedom being ex exercised collectively by people. Yeah. Exactly. You know, oh. everyone knows that we all have the right by our constitution. We all have to simply go by that constitution and right. stop bowing down and allowing people to say, that's what, how we got in trouble in the first place. That's called corruption. You hey, know? John. Yeah. Don't do yeah. this. You know, pay it off and be happy you and go away. Yeah. yeah. Oh, are you? Yeah. The co-stars are leaving. There. Yeah, there you are. <laughs> They're being called to another they're, meeting. They're quite, they're but anyway, Michelle, I think uh, I hope this is valuable, but I think yes. the solution to this, the reason I was able to expose sort of quote unquote pandemic, expose the unholy alliance between government and Twitter, all these things is because I'm trained in system science. So at truthfreedomhealth.com, we want to change, we want to train millions of people in the knowledge science of systems. Because once you train people in that and you give them a community, the only way to win is people have to learn the science of systems. Yes. Otherwise, people will get caught into the left wing or the right wing, exactly. or they become pro and anti, or they become desperate and they take a gun and want to shoot people, do terrorism. And any one of those four buckets, left or right, complacency or desperation, those in power want people to be in one of those four buckets. They don't want people to think beyond left and right, beyond pro and anti actually see things as they are. And so, just to wrap it up, throughout history, divide and conquer has been a very- Brought to you by the British strategy. Empire. Yes. Yeah. And it just seems like that's what's in play right now because- It's divide, conquer, and there's two more buckets, make you desperate. So you become a terrorist and you do terrorist actions, not collectively organizing bottoms up. Or you say, I'm just going to go live off the grid. Any one of those four they're happy with because you're out of their way. The left and right, they love because you can manipulate people. One day you play Tucker, one day you play someone on CNN, one day you play Alex Jones, you know, people all riled up, and then you play Joe Rogan, who'll go left and right. He's all over the map. It's all entertainment, WWE entertainment. Controlled opposition, right? Yep. Dr. Shiva, this has just been extraordinary. Um, tell us where people can go to learn more about you and to follow, their, follow your work. Two websites, vashiva.com victoralphashiva.com. And I want to encourage everyone to become truth, freedom, and health, what we call warrior scholars. And you can contribute there, truthfreedomhealth.com. The way we do it is you contribute and we give you gifts of knowledge. So then anyone who goes through the course and passes at any adult, you can give the course to as many young people as you want, 13 through 18. A former mentor of mine, who's known as the father of system dynamics, Jay Forrester, he just died at 99. He felt that every child should learn the science of systems. So I'm following through on his sort of vision. And so that's what we've made accessible. But if we don't learn the science of systems, George Soros is one of the theoreticians in the science of systems. The science of systems is like a knife. You can use it like a criminal can to kill people, or you can use it as a surgeon to heal people. Right now, we have about 10,000 people who learn the science of systems 
And they're the ones using it to manipulate, subjugate, and enslave people. So guys like me were supposed to learn that science and stay in those elite institutions. Part of the- Part of that. Right. Right. And what I've done is sort of betrayed them and taken this knowledge. It's like Prometheus bringing the fire. And that's what the science of systems is. So it's really up to people. Do they want to have self-respect for themselves? Do they want to be accountable? Or do they want to follow Donald Trump one day and Tucker Carlson another day and Joe Biden another day? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. You know, this left-right. Either you're following an imbecile, which is a politician or an entertainer like Trump, right? Because none of these guys do what needs to be done at the time. You, you know, next right? time we come on the show, I really, when you come on, I want to go into the swamp that is Washington D.C. because I know you know a lot. And yeah, we'll do is, that. <laughs> yeah, a fascinating interview. Okay, Dr. Shiva, thank you so much for coming you're on welcome. the show today. Engineer, scientist, author inventor, entrepreneur, and a warrior on behalf of the United States Constitution. And everyone should remember the man who invented email. And, and the, the man the, who invented email yeah, and the, with in a fact, the boy copyright. Who invented, yeah, and the boy who invented email because it's a very important American story Yes, that every American child should know. Yes, so. and we all congratulate that 14-year-old boy. Thanks, Michelle. Okay.